Welcome to Volume 5 of Divers Down. Chapter 7, A Problem in Ocean Engineering. A hearty lunch was ready on the westward when the Holokai discharged its jubilant young passengers. They filled plates and crowded around the big table in the main salon. Tap Pryor looked in before leaving for his ranch a few miles away. You did a great job, he told them. Congratulations to all of you, and especially to you, Julie. Julie thanked him with a delighted smile. Sato stood up. Sir, I feel a speech coming on. Tap smiled. That's the Hawaiian in you coming out, Sato. Speak. Well, sir, we know that only at Makapu'u would professionals let a bunch of kids do a job like this. It was exciting and it was fun, and we learned a lot. The Ilakai mob thanks you for having faith in us. Wasn't blind faith, Sato. We've watched you all since you came to Makapu'u. We weren't taking much of a chance. Now eat and get some rest. We have a recreation plan that Pete will tell you about. Julie spoke up. Mr. Pryor, can't we all do just a little more work on the wreck while we're still here? We could at least recover Kane. Afraid not, Julie. You know that we set the diving time low to prevent any possibility of accidents. And we can't continue tomorrow because the Holokai is leaving at once for a job in Kuhului. The westward isn't rigged for it, so we'd have to go back to Makapu'u anyway, just to outfit it with a winch. The Makapu'u chief smiled sympathetically. I know how you feel, but Kane and the canoe have been there for a century. A little longer won't hurt. So have lunch and relax. You've done enough for this trip. Julie finished her lunch, then rose. I'm going to have a nap, Kip. I feel pretty wrung out. See you in a while. Kip was tired, too and the others around the table were stifling yawns. Diving is always a great energy drain, and divers, even slim girls, eat heartily and sleep soundly. The strain on Julie had been especially great because it was emotional as well as physical. Kip soon followed her example, and he heard others getting into their bunks around him. For a time he lay awake, wondering about Umi, and hoping the kahuna would help him. Funny, a kahuna in this day and age. He wondered if there were still medicine men among the American Indians. He heard Willis's voice through the curtain, automatically tensed and then grinned at himself. He reacted to Willis like a dog bristling. So far, after bracing Willis about Umi, he and the other boy had acted like a pair of invisible men passing each other. But he knew that sooner or later, he and McKay would meet head on. The skirl of a whistle woke him. Pete was calling. All out. Muster on deck in five minutes. Kip looked at his watch. He had slept nearly three hours. On deck, Pete made his customary nose count. Those too tired can stay aboard. Those who wish to accept are invited by Tap Pryor to use his stable of horses for a tour of the area. Anybody who can't ride or doesn't want to will be taken by station wagon. Who wants to stay here? No one did, of course. Kip's friends crowded around him. Let's go on horseback, Susan urged. Julie looked at him questioningly. Can you ride, Kip? Some. I'm no cowboy, but I can always grip the saddle horn to stay on. Spoken like a true engineer, Ski chuckled. Me, I learned on a merry-go-round. It will seem funny to go in a straight line. Pete counted hands. Kip's group chose to ride, and Willis and his friends preferred a station wagon tour. Okay, Pete said. Riders, get into slacks and shoes and board the bus. Tonight our dinner will be a luau in the park area at the end of the pier.
The bus took the riders to the stables, where Pete turned them over to two real Hawaiian cowboys, called paniolos. They were dressed like Mexican vaqueros, with ornate silver-trimmed saddles, wide hats, and all the rest. Hana was Hawaiian cattle country. Thousands of steers grazed on the slopes of Haleakala, growing fat on the lush grass of that vast ranch land. Most of them belonged to Tap Pryor. Kip was saddle sore after the ride, which took them to the Seven Sacred Falls, where, according to legend, the mother of the god Maui had washed clothes. Kip agreed with Julie when she said that Hana was one of the loveliest places on earth. It was a mixture of quiet green beauty and breathtaking cliffs, gorges, and clear mountain streams. There were few haoles. The Hana people were largely Hawaiian, friendly, laughing folk who waved gaily at the young riders. Evening brought the luau, a traditional Polynesian feast. A whole pig had been roasting slowly for hours in a pit of hot stones, and the local people had decorated the area with flowers. Julie and Kip ran up to Johnny Keanu, who had gone to check on Umi. How is he? they asked anxiously. Umi is getting back to normal, Johnny said. The kahuna pointed out that Howleys break the taboos all the time with no harm, and so long as he didn't break any taboos personally, he would be all right. You have to understand, kids. Umi wasn't scared so much for himself as he was for you. Kip had seen that. He was especially afraid for Julie. That's right, because it's her project. We'll leave Umi here for a week with his family. Top will bring him back next weekend. Now, let's get seats. The luau is about ready. They sat on the ground with huge banana leaves, placemats, and plates. A girl came around and draped them with flower lathes and gave the girls hibiscus blossoms to tuck in their hair. Kip got a lay of fragrant white ginger blossoms, and Julie got one that looked like little pink shells. She held it out for him to sniff. It's pekake. That's Hawaiian for jasmine. Isn't it lovely? And it was, and so was its wearer. Kip was getting up the courage to say so when the first dish arrived, something called lomi lomi salmon. The fish was mixed with vegetables and pulverized beyond recognition. Lomi Lomi is Hawaiian massage, Sato explained. Julie chuckled. The masseur certainly had a heavy hand when he massaged this. Kip tried something that looked like a tapered sausage. It was slightly fishy, but very good. He reached for another piece. What is this stuff? Great, huh? Guy. Johnny Keanu was enjoying it too. Maybe octopus. The last bite stuck in Kip's throat, and he barely refrained from gagging. Julie doubled up with laughter. Oh, Kip, you should... Oh my gosh, you should see your face. She laughed so hard that her slim body shook. It was an infectious laugh, and the others caught it. Johnny bellowed like a wounded steer, and Sato choked on his own piece of octopus and had to be pounded on the back. Julie recovered and borrowed Kip's handkerchief to wipe her eyes. Oh, I'm so sorry, she said meekly. A bubble of laughter escaped. It tasted so good to you until, well, until you knew what it was. Kip would have been willing to eat a whole grandfather octopus, making appropriate faces to hear her laugh like that again. It wasn't a giggle, but wholehearted, bubbly laughter, and it livened up the whole luau. Johnny handed Kip a tidbit. I won't fool you with Hawaiian names. This is raw fish soaked in lime juice. Try it. 
Kip did, and to his surprise it didn't taste fishy at all. He didn't think it would ever be his favorite food, but then again it wasn't half bad. A Hawaiian girl passed around coconut shells filled with grayish paste, rather like wet cornmeal in texture. Kip looked at it suspiciously. It's poi, Julie told him. Kip had done his homework before coming to the islands, and he knew about poi, the starchy staple dish of ancient Hawaii, pounded from cooked taro root and left to ferment. He tried it, then quickly reached for a glass of lime-flavored tea. Better than ice cream to us kama'ainas, Sato said, smacking his lips. You like it? It tastes like wallpaper paste, Kip said candidly. Julie dissolved in laughter again. Still chuckling, she asked, And have you ever tasted wallpaper paste, Kip? He grinned. We papered a room when I was little. The paste looked like vanilla pudding. I didn't know it then, but it tasted like poi. Stick to the Kalua Pua, the roast pig, Johnny advised. It takes time to acquire a taste for these Hawaiian delicacies. Kip tasted everything, but he liked the roast pig the best. He finished off the delicious fresh fruit. After dinner, the Hana Hawaiians showed them traditional games and dances. Julie broke down his reluctance to try Hawaiian dancing, and to his surprise, he learned quickly. He had neither the energetic enthusiasm of Ski, nor the natural grace of Sato, but Julie, who danced as well as she did everything else, was pleased with him, and that made him feel pleased with himself. The only flaw in the luau was the absence of Umi. Kip hoped that Johnny was right, and that Umi would be okay. During the night, the westward departed under power. Kip roused at the beat of the diesel, then turned over and went back to sleep. He awoke with Sato shaking him. We're rounding the end of Molokai, Kip. The sails are up. Come on topside. When Kip reached the deck, the sun was just rising. To port, the high cliffs of the island of Molokai were veiled in dawn mist. The beautiful schooner was driving under full sail. The trade wind on the stern quarter perfect for maximum speed. Kip leaned on the rail with Sato, feeling wonderful. He no longer thought about being harassed by Pete or the conflict with McKay, but only about the excitement of yesterday's dive and the fun of the ride and the luau. Julie and Susan came up the ladder, bringing egg and bacon sandwiches for themselves and for him and Sato, just as a cry of, Porpoises under the bow! sent them running. They hung over the rail, eating and watching the sleek sea beasts take turns riding the bow wave. They're so wild and free and beautiful, Julie sighed. I wish I had been born a porpoise. Without thinking, Kip said what was on his mind. I'm glad you weren't. You make far too nice a specimen of human-type girl. It was the first time he had ever come out with such a spontaneous compliment, and it surprised even him. Susan raised her eyebrows and made silent motions of applause. Julie kept her eyes on the porpoises. She said very quietly, Well, I'm glad that you're glad. Tiring of the sport, the porpoise school moved away, and Pete Jordan summoned the group to a meeting at the mainmast. This is a business meeting of what Sato called the Ilakai mob. You've all seen the wreck. The next step is a problem in ocean engineering. How do we raise it? Willis was the first to speak up. Easy. We get it clear of sand and haul old Kane up. Then we put slings under the canoe and lift it. The Holokai's crane could handle that easily. Kip knew it wasn't that simple. 
They were dealing with fragile wood that would crush. Unless the canoe was protected, it would break along the keel like a rotten banana, and the sides would crunch inward. He waited to see how Pete reacted. Pete showed neither approval nor disapproval. How do you brace the canoe so it won't break? Willis knew the answer to that. He knew the answer to everything, or at least thought he did, Kip decided bitterly. I'd use a lift bar the full length of the canoe and attach the slings to it. I'd use very broad slings with turnbuckles to get even stress, and I'd haul up by pulling on the lift bar. Tom Shepard objected. You'd collapse the canoe inward the moment you lifted. Willis glared. I'd use interior bracing, stupid. Tom started to get up, but Anne's hand on his arm pulled him off balance. She asked tartly, Did you think about the interior bracing before Tom brought it up, or were you just reacting to his question? If you think you could get the Illichai up in one piece with slings, then you're the stupid one. Pete held up his hand. Enough. We will have no more personal remarks from anybody. Who else has an idea? The wood is soft, Chuck offered. We might have to bring it up in pieces. Oh, that would be terrible, Susan exclaimed. It's practically whole. There must be a way to raise it. Why wouldn't Willis's idea work? Pete looked from face to face. Well, who can answer? Why wouldn't it work? Or would it? I think it would work, Bob Richards offered. I don't see anything wrong with it. Kip could see plenty, as Tom had. Any interior bracing strong enough to withstand the inward pressure of slings would drive the braces into or through the spongy wood. And while it was possible in theory to get even tension on the slings, you couldn't be sure it was even until the crane lifted and then it would be too late. He kept quiet and listened. Sato wondered if it was possible to get the canoe up in one piece by any method, agreeing with Chuck. The wood was too fragile, he said. A number of impractical suggestions were made, including sliding the bubble machine catamaran under the canoe and blowing the ballast tanks. Kip saw that Julie kept looking at him and knew she was waiting for him to speak up, but he thought the whole exercise was silly. Pete knew how the canoe should be raised, and all the talk added up to nothing, because some professional method would be used. He saw no point in contributing an inferior idea. The discussion petered out. Willis had made the only positive suggestion even if it wasn't a very good one. Pete looked from face to face, waiting. His eyes met Kip's, and he raised an eyebrow. Kip smiled sheepishly. It was like school, when he hadn't contributed to the discussion. Julie saw the look. Kip has an idea, Pete. Good, I'll with it. Are you waiting to patent it? Forced to speak, Kip shook his head. I don't have a plan, just the start of one. I guess it could be developed, but honest, Pete... You know how to raise the Ilikai. You'll tell us how, no matter what brainstorms we come up with. Whether I know or not isn't the point, Pete said crisply. Never mind whether you've engineered a plan down to the last bolt. Give us the approach. Kip shrugged. He had no choice. I'd build a protective cradle. First, heavy plastic sheeting to protect the wood, then wire mesh to reinforce it. Then around the mesh... I'd build a fitted pipe frame of ordinary plumbing pipe sections, cut to fit, and connected by regular pipe joints. I'd tie the wire mesh to the pipe frame to make it solid. Would you crane it to the surface? Chuck asked. No, I think I'd use lift bags to distribute the stress evenly and float it up. A lot of extra plumbing for nothing, Willis muttered. 
It would work, Anne said excitedly. How would you do it, Pete? Kip challenged. Pete grinned. You may never know, Kip. Okay, kids, we have two ideas. Willis wants to bring it up in slings, and Kip wants to build a cradle. Any other suggestions? There were none. All right. Mr. Pryor and the staff have agreed that this is to be entirely a summer group project. Willis and Kip, you will develop your ideas and submit a complete engineering plan to me by Saturday noon. The staff will judge the two proposals over the weekend and issue a decision on Monday. We will then have two weeks to prepare and one week to lift Kane and the Ilikai. A tough schedule, but we'll meet it. Kip, give a copy of your measurements to Willis. That is all. It was enough. Kip leaned back against the mast and let his breath out with a whoosh. Like it or not, he was in a competition. He thought his approach was sound, but he couldn't be sure. Maybe Willis could iron out the bugs in the sling plan, which was basically a lot simpler. He had a rough week ahead. His friends gathered around him. Leave it to Kip, Ski said in admiration. We certainly won't leave it to Willis, Ian said emphatically. I'd like to strangle that overbearing creep. I'll help strangle him, Susan volunteered. Kip, your plan makes more sense. Plenty more, Tom Shepard agreed. All I know is photography and electronics, Kip, but if you need any help, you just send up a smoke signal, Chuck offered. I'm a fair-handed engineering drawing. I'd like to help. I brought my slide rule, Ski said. Thanks to all of you, Kip responded warmly. I'll need all the help I can get. Even then, I may fall flat on my face. Sato Punaloa grinned. Not you, Kip. Just yell if you need us. We'll be there. Kip waited until they were out of earshot and then turned to Julie. Well, thanks to all except you. Look what you got me into. Julie looked very innocent. She gazed up at the masthead and spoke to a circling gull. Boys are very peculiar. Do you suppose this John Kipling Morgan thinks I'm trapped him into speaking up because I like him? No, sir. I picked him as the one most likely to get the Ilikai up in one piece for me, and he'll do it, too. Yeah, after he throws you into Molokai Channel, Kip said, grinning in spite of his inner worry. Julie smiled, too. Then she asked curiously, Are you really upset, Kip? He thought about it for a moment before replying, trying to unscramble his mixed feelings. No. No, not upset. I'm pretty sure my idea can be developed into a plan that'll work. But maybe Willis's can, too. He might be a real crumb, but he's smart. I'm not underestimating him just because I don't like him. If he can solve some of the problems in using slings, he can come up with a simpler plan, one that takes less time and expense. Willis had been talking with his group in the bow. He walked back amidships, careful not to look at Kip. He spoke to Julie. It's your wreck I'll be raising. Better plan to work with me. If you start now, you'll be in at the beginning instead of having to learn later how I figured it out. Julie's soft voice was so cold that Kip could almost hear the ice tinkle. I'm afraid hard feelings are the only thing you're good at raising, Willis. I'm on Kip's team. Willis walked off without a word. Kip's last uncertainty gave way to determination. He said, smiling, Thanks, partner. And I do mean partner. Let's call the kids together and start turning this idea into an engineering plan. Julie smiled back at him. Okay, partner, let's go. Kip quickly copied the canoe dimensions, and Tom delivered them to Willis. 
Then for the rest of the trip, the group discussed alternate ways of building the cradle and finally decided that most of it would have to be assembled on the bottom. As Kip pointed out, the canoe was cradled in sand. Once sand support was removed, the Ilikai could collapse from its own weight unless supported by the cradle. That meant sand had to be removed from a section. The section framed, the sand replaced temporarily, and the next section framed, and so on. By the time the westward reached Mackay Pier, Kip had a very clear approach to the frame. What bothered him most was the problem of interior bracing. He had no illusions about the strength of the wood or the fiber lashings. They would break if someone spoke harshly. As they walked down the pier, Kip saw a pair of foam plastic cups on the beach. The sight distracted him from his mental wrestling with the canoe problem. It was criminal to litter ashore with trash. He strode down and picked up the cups, crushing them as he walked to the nearest trash barrel. And in that moment, being considerate of seashore neatness was repaid a thousandfold. He looked at the crumpled mass of foam and stopped short. What is it? Julie demanded. Kip, you have the strangest expression. Urethane foam, he said in a hushed voice. Pictures ran through his head. He knew how it could be done. We can build a cover for the top of the canoe and inject plastic liquid through the hole in the bottom Kane made. It will foam inside and force the water out, set hard, and brace the whole interior. The foam will give buoyancy, Ski added. And it'll be easy to remove later, Anne finished. Kip, that's wonderful. Later, he lay away in the darkness and went over the basic plan again. He knew that the key to successful engineering is to get a good job done with minimum manpower, time, and cost. His plan would cost more in all three than would Willis's. Therefore, it had to be obviously better. It had to be so perfect that he could prove to Pete and Tap Pryor that he could raise the Ilikai whole and with no further damage. Connie was not a problem. He could be brought up first, protected against damage, and craned aboard the Holokai. But the fragile canoe... Kip knew that he wouldn't sleep well until the decision was handed down on Monday. On the following morning, Kip ran headlong into a lack of information. What angles were available in standard plumbing fittings? Was sheet vinyl buoyant? How buoyant? How much did a square foot of chicken wire weigh? And so on. At Pete's suggestion, he had taken a desk in the library next to Julie's. She compiled the list of information they needed, and by noontime, she had four pages. They ate with their friends at lunchtime. Willis and company were not in evidence. Susan, who was friendly with Carol Burquist, reported that Willis was taking his buddies into Honolulu for lunch. When Kip raised the question of how to calculate the Ilikai's weight, Anne remembered the piece of wood brought up by the biology team. It was in a tank with the specimens. Until they found out how it fit into the canoe, it would not be allowed to dry out. Saturated wood cracks and distorts when it dries and a wooden object such as a canoe needs special chemical treatment. Julie said she had anthropology reports with complete descriptions of typical Polynesian canoes. With the wood as a sample, they could come close to calculating the Ilikai's saturated weight. Kip outlined the approach. First, we excavate the section around Kane and recover him. Then we frame that part, a layer of plastic to protect the wood, then a layer of wire mesh. We start the pipe frame at the keel and bring the frame up the sides. How can we be sure the frame will fit? Sato asked. Kip grinned. 
We get enough chicken wire to make a full-scale mock-up of the canoe. Ski is going to be the world's greatest marine technician, and I think building a wire replica will be a perfect job for him. Ski rolled his eyes at the ceiling. My luck, the very first boat I get to build won't even hold water, if we win. Of course we'll win, Julie said heatedly. Chuck Reed shrugged. If it were just between Kip and Willis, I wouldn't have any doubts, but how do we know Willis isn't in Honolulu getting a little private help from professional engineers? He throws money around like it's going out of style. Anne shook her head. No, I don't like the big Claude, but he wouldn't do a thing like that. Julie agreed with Anne. He's pretty overbearing, but he has too much pride to get help on the side. Maybe, Chuck wasn't convinced. Only if anyone ever punctures that pride, watch out. He's the kid who'd swim to the North Pole for a chance to bushwhack the competition that got there first. By the time Ted came to pick up Julie after work, the plan was outlined. Now they needed to fill in the gaps in their information and start both calculations and engineering drawings. Kip was more optimistic than he had been at any moment since Pete announced the competition. In the evening, using Ski's slide rule, he figured the number of man-hours in the bottom the job would take, and he looked up horrified. Wow, even if we use all the divers, we won't have enough working time in the bottom unless we push the diving tables to the limit. The Navy tables allow 100 minutes without decompression at that depth, but we'd have to use repetitive tables for second dives by each person every day. With a long enough wait between dives, we could get another hour or so from each. Who's got a copy of the tables? Chuck rummaged in his locker and pulled out a book and tossed it to Kip. In the appendix... With ski on the slide rule, they calculated the maximum downtime with a six-hour interval between dives. Kip shook his head. No good. It would take four days, maybe five, if we ran into any trouble. Good diving weather won't last that long. We've got trouble, kids. You'll work it out, Ski said and yawned. And while you're doing it, I'll be sleeping. Before Kip fell asleep, he realized there was only one possible solution— they would need a deck decompression chamber standing by in case any of the kids got bent. Unlikely, but possible. And they would have to put four aquanauts in the bubble machine to remain on the bottom throughout. But would the Mackay engineers allow them to use the habitat? He knew he had arrived at the crux of the problem. What was it worth to Makapu'u to get the Ilikai up intact? They could accept McKay's plan with a high risk of damage to the canoe, but probably no more than could be repaired although at high cost. Or they could buy Kip's Way, initially much more expensive, but maybe cheaper in the end because it was designed to give the canoe full protection from damage. First thing in the morning, he got Pete on the phone and asked bluntly, Can we plan on using the bubble machine, and can we get a deck decompression chamber? There was silence for a moment, and then Pete replied, Kip, we'll help iron the bugs out of the plan we accept, if there are bugs. But don't ask for guidance before you submit your plan. An engineer has to choose and justify what he needs to do his job. Kip was trying to decide whether or not Pete's reply was encouraging when Julie arrived. She got a list of information they needed from her desk and said, Come on, Kip. We're going to drop Ted at work. Susan and Sato will help us with this list. Julie obviously had been on the phone, too. Kip grinned. Okay, partner. They had agreed that getting the information was first priority. After dividing the list and visiting a dozen wholesale and retail chemical and hardware outlets, the four had some information, but had drawn a blank on several key items. 
To fill in, they had bought samples to be measured and weighed at the Institute. Kip was amazed at how little people knew about the products they sold, beyond the price, of course. At the end of the day, they picked up Ted at the airport, and Ted announced that he and Marge were taking the four of them to dinner. Kip and Sato returned to Makapu'u to shower and change clothes, while Julie took Susan home with her. When the car came again, Kip was feeling very strange in tie and jacket. It was the first time since his arrival. Sato, similarly dressed and equally uncomfortable, laughed at him. You're getting to be a kamaiina, Kip. Only a Malahini mainlander wears a tie. Us old-timers wear one only when going formal, like having dinner with Ted and Marge. Ted took them to the banging court of the Moana Hotel on Waikiki Beach, and they had a fine dinner, spiced with laughter, while watching the outrigger canoes and the surfers riding the waves. Julie had lent Susan clothes, and they both wore long, graceful holomu'us, slim-fitted versions of the traditional mumu. Both wore elegant sandals and had hibiscus blossoms in their hair. Kip thought that Susan looked just great, but that Julie was really stunning. There was time out on the following morning for a depth test of the bubble machine. The Holokai towed it to the 100-foot depth and fed it power and air through the umbilical while they took it to the bottom. Kip and the others each had a turn on going up through the hatch into the dry interior. The clear ends gave a fine view, only faintly distorted, of the sea bottom. After lunch, Pete released Chuck, who began translating Kip's sketches into engineering drawings. Kip wrote explanatory material, and Julie did calculations on a borrowed adding machine. It was Friday afternoon, and the plan was due at noon on the following day. The three worked into the evening, and Chuck finished the drawings as midnight neared. Ted, who had been waiting for Julie, grew impatient. How much to go, Kip? About six pages. You'll have four hours in the morning. Time enough. Let's go home, Julie. On Saturday morning, Kip found he had forgotten to show how the aluminum cover sections would be attached to the frame. Chuck had to be recalled to prepare a separate drawing. But at last it was done. Kip hand-lettered in neat engineering letters an archaeological engineering proposal for raising the ancient canoe Ilikai. Underneath he lettered by Kip Morgan and Julie Scott. Listing himself as senior author was the only concession he would make. He brushed her protests aside and added, Engineering Drawings by Chuck Reed. He had thought about a project name. Project Ilikai was the obvious choice, but he thought it was perhaps too obvious. Umi's problem with Kane had been the clue. Watch this, he said, and lettered it in. Project Kahuna. Julie's quick mind didn't need diagrams drawn to show why he had chosen the name. It's perfect, she said approvingly. He was certain he must have overlooked some important details, but Kip knew he had done his best. If only his best had been better, but he knew it couldn't be without more experience and education. How well had Willis done? Let's deliver it, he said. Julie smiled. She knew Kip's thought. And then bite our nails until Monday? Ehele kaua, Kip. Let's go. The time was five minutes to noon.